What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. It's time for fun. I see a lot of good people in the chat chat already. Got Dylan. In the trap. The trap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, you probably figured it out from the title, but we're going to be talking hip hop hypnosis with 2023's greatest author, easily, Al Dog. What's up, dude? Chance, it's been a long time coming. I'm typically in the chat with the gravy alert, but now we're ladling. So Yeah, man, I knew that you were a real one because you always made sure and alert everybody to the gravy. I yeah. was immediately, you know, trusting you that that's a great role for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to, there needs to be a siren when there's some major gravy ladling, whether it's Dylan, whether it's uh, Slick Dissident. You know, some of the other guests you had, like Aline Dagan McCusick, she's excellent. So, you know, you've been ladling for uh, a long time. And, you know, I've been in the audience for about a year. So I'm happy to be here. Graduated with the book of the year, The Charter, A Millennial Journey Out of Hip Hop Hypnosis. And uh, Dylan would be happy to find out that a lot of the characters, the setting for the characters, the group of young people, guys and girls, it actually takes place in Newport, Rhode Island. So that's a fun little tidbit. Oh, yeah. Dylan's a Northeasterner, right? Is he from yeah. in that area? He's from Newport, yeah. Yes, Kabir. Gabe is running late, or he has some kind of good excuse, I'm sure. We won't give him any lashings. He's always here. He's always reliable. So I'm sure for whatever reason, he just hasn't quite popped in yet. But uh, we'll catch up with him. He's, I'm sure, excited about this. As usual, he, he didn't even know we were talking to Al Dog today about hip-hop-related mind control ops. Yet he was already sending me a bunch of weaves about Kanye Quest 3030. <laughs> Did you <laughs> ever know see- what that means? Oh, okay. Well, we'll save it for if Gabe pops in. And if he doesn't, mm-hmm. then I'm going to have to steal his thunder and talk about it for him because it's a weird one. But yeah, man. So uh, who, the, who the heck are you? So I'm Al Dog. Um, I started writing in around 2015 after I graduated from the University of Rhode Island. That's when I started a hip hop sports blog that is no longer around, but that's how I started writing. Um, I would write top five articles, you know, check out this podcast, check out this pod, you know, check out this thing, check out this person, whatever. And then eventually some big time people would start sharing my stuff. I was like, okay, this is going pretty well. From there, I did some uh, other projects. I did uh, an internship. I linked up with Dr. Shiva in 2017. 2018, I started America's number one Chadcast. That went on for about a year. And then 2019, 2020, I worked on this book. And now it's available uh, right now in 2023. I got my YouTube channel at aldogauthor.com, Instagram, aldogvlog. And I call myself the Illuminati because I do a lot of things. And uh, I pull a lot of strings and I make it happen, man. So we got the book of the year 2023. I have a second book coming out this fall. But can you tell the viewers your experience reading the first 70 pages or so? What'd you think? Oh, man, it it definitely hooked me. Okay, cool. (laughs) So I'm somebody that was more of an outside observer to the hip hop world. Never enjoyed music of that genre (laughs) much at all. You know, maybe occasionally as it was remixed into something more fun, electronic-y. But uh, yeah, hip-hop never did it for me. So it was funny to read the exact parallel, uh, you know, story that the characters in this book go through, at least up to the point where I'm at, that I witnessed with cousins, uh, friends, school schoolmates in high school. Mm -hmm. And 
there's definitely like already multiple. T- <laughs> yeah, Jenny says she witnessed this. I was laughing out loud for real, for real. Yes. Nice. So that's hard to do with that's a book. It's do. very hard. Yeah. Yeah. In Make somebody format. laugh out loud for sure. Yeah. So there's lots of laugh out louds and, you know, it's super insidious, the rap thing. And I think maybe people are kind of hip to that, but I'm excited to get your take on it. For me, my personal experience and what resonated with me is how, uh, in particular, one of the characters. Okay, so it's following to give people a little synopsis of like the story so far as I understand it is we're following a friend group of guys from early high school years, kind of jump through that pretty fast and, you know, lay some groundwork. And then we're mostly following their story as young adults coming of age and how some of them have been completely twisted into a criminal mentality. I mean, they were already... (laughs) They had a lot of things going against them, but the rap music just gave them something horrific to idolize and to watch, you know, particularly one character become like a straight up thug gangster wannabe. Yeah, Chet. Wigger. The word for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that was a popular term back in the day for sure. Yeah, that a wigger would probably be somebody who's most under hip hop hypnosis. That word sort of fell out of fashion when the entire generation just kind of uh, absorbed this fraudulent culture, right? And people stopped using that word, but that that word um, applies pretty well to somebody who's under hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, me personally, I've witnessed, I I remember, I have a family member, a cousin who we were really close growing up. We were more like brothers. And this is, you know, if someday he heard this, (laughs) I'm not saying anything untrue. Love you, buddy. Uh, But, I witnessed him start to get into particularly Eminem and Dr. Mm-hmm. Dre. Those were the big yep. ones for him. Dr. Gay. <laughs> the, the, the shorter version of Dr. Dre is Dr. Gay. G-A-G-Y. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's one of the funny. We have to go over some of the characters you made up. But uh, okay. yeah, so I witnessed him, this cousin of mine, pretty good you know, young lad, but comb- combination of like the the uh, boomer dad and mom who don't really have a good marriage going or a good stable family, plus the idolization of especially Eminem. And you got to probably just go off on Eminem for us and talk about that entire Absolutely, thing. Absolutely. I'd love to. So uh, Eminem. Anyway, I, just to finish that up, I, I, I saw this cousin of mine, you yeah. know, transform from like me, just like a well-meaning nice young lad into drug abuse, criminal behavior in and out of jail you know, absent from his own son's life, all kinds of stuff. And uh, it's not like you can just point at one thing and blame the music, but the music definitely gave him all the wrong things to idolize. And so I'll just leave it there. So Eminem bridges the gap between the baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z who grow up with hip hop. So I had an experience and I've talked to, a few other people, specifically two girls I dated who had the same exact experience where my dad was a huge Eminem, huge Dr. Dre fan. My first girlfriend, her dad, professor, huge Eminem fan, huge Dr. Dre fan, that 2001 era. Another girl I dated later in life, it was the same deal. Her boomer dad loved Eminem, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg. That particular era, that 2001 era, specifically with the Marshall Mathers LP, Dr. Dre's The Chronic 2001 bridge the gap between the baby boomers and their offspring. So the baby boomers, right? You know, rock and roll is 
just as bad in my view as hip hop. It's sort of a weapon. It's something that's used to tune the populace, tune them into a vibration onto a frequency. Lil Wayne, for example, one of his nicknames is Lil Tunchi. Why does he call himself that? He's kind of tuning his listeners, right? And that's something that sort of intersects with your work. But tuning Eminem, their G. Yeah, exactly. So it's tuning the vibration of the generation. And um, with Eminem specifically, I remember listening to the Marshall Mathers LP when I was 10 years old. And to be honest, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> like it's an incredible work of art. He was an angry, uncensored artist who was just flying off the hip. And people were um, sort of identifying with some of his emotions, with some of his uh, turmoil he, he grew up with, right? Personally, I think that Eminem's first couple albums are, are incredible, right? Because he was uncensored. It was like, a, it was like South Park on, on record, right? So I was into it. And I, I had great reverence for him growing up, right? Later, he gets into some issues. Byron Williams, a man by, by the name of Byron Williams, Eminem's bodyguard, wrote a tell-all book about Eminem. And in it, he spills the tea on Mr. Shady. And the best way I could describe Mr. Marshall Mathers is that he is the type of guy to have a million dollars in the bank and still be getting into an argument with his uncle in a yard. Like he's, he's like one of those guys at his core. So Eminem really did bridge the gap and he did sort of bring hip hop to a, you know, um, basically the white audience you know, to put it, put it blankly, because I don't think our demographic would, would necessarily listen to it if it wasn't for Eminem bridging the gap. I personally do believe that the original Eminem overdosed in 2008, between 2008 and 2012, I think it's a straight up Paul McCartney situation where um, he actually, I think the original Eminem is dead. And I think what we see today is a, a replacement. Um, the reason why I say that is because there's this really strange mass ritual type thing that happens often in hip hop where people are shown things in a music video and then it happens. Eminem, his like toy soldiers music video, his buddy proof dies in the video. And then later in the real world, his buddy proof died. And I think that after his buddy proof died, I think that he developed some serious, serious drug problems. And I do think he passed away. And I do see, think that the guy we're seeing now nowadays Completely different style, completely different tempo. Not the same artist, in my view. So that's kind of. I'm just gonna screen share. Yeah, (laughs) you know what comes up in a quick search on what you just said. Yeah, so that people can you know look into that for themselves. But this is the uh, then and now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is there's maybe something to it? Yeah, it's he got replaced in my view. I think they found a guy because. The hardcore listeners of Eminem were not happy with his albums, you know, post 2008 after 8 Mile. That's kind of when his career and his music career apexed. After then, he started just yelling. He started just screaming. It wasn't this uh, smooth delivery. It wasn't the same comedy. It was this guy trying super, super hard to be Eminem. That's what we saw. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's the same dude. But yeah. Oh, and yeah, there's even that song, The Real Slim Shady. (laughs) (laughs) that's funny yeah uh did you ever look into his connection as the like grandson or great-grandson i think of samuel liddell mcgregor mathers 
it basically more often known as McGregor Mathers, a very high ranking member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and pretty influential occultist of the uh, late 19th century. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't uh, looked into that. Well, the other thing about this is we have, you know, as Clint talked about a few weeks ago, he he was talking more about the presidents being all related to the royalties of Europe, but that actually applies to most of the celebrities too. And Absolutely. I think, I think uh, there's probably that's go- what's going on with Eminem as well, or Slim Shady or Marshall Mathers or whatever you want to call him. He's definitely though related to McGregor Mathers. Don't know much about McGregor Mathers, but I do have like a lot of suspicions of, around the order of the Golden Dawn being sketchy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we could talk about Eminem and 50 Cent for quite a bit because they play a role on the world stage. And I'm going to get into 50 Cent in a little bit, but Eminem, okay. The thing about him was that, like I said, he bridged the gap. He was talented in his early days. Uh, he did have sort of this underdog sort of, uh, um, you know, narrative to him. You know what I mean? But, you know, he was like, he said some wild shit. He said some funny shit. Like when he was back in his day, like he said shit that he would never say nowadays. You know what I mean? And with, with 50 cent. All right. Eminem sort of introduced 50 cent onto the world stage. 50 cent plays a role. (laughs) And this is going to sound a little wild. This is going to sound a little bit into the Gabe territory, but I do believe that 50 cent. Someone's got to represent the Gabe territory. Yeah, exactly. We're going to go there. We're going to go there right now because I think that 50 cent and the G unit played a role in the war in Iraq. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't think it's a coincidence that when the U S invaded Iraq in 2003, and from a logistical standpoint, it's pretty wild to think about. What do you think they were listening to? They were listening to Get Rich or Die Trying, which came out in, I think, between 2000 and 2003. That's when it came out. The G unit, the guerrilla unit, they were an entirely militarized gangster unit that was the most popular during this time. Now, 50 Cent was a super alpha guerrilla gangster, right? He got shot nine times, he survived. And then they recruit the game from the West Coast. He got shot allegedly five times and survived. They got Young Buck, they got Lloyd Banks, they got Tony Yayo. And so they, they're this like criminal group, right? And so they, they kind of apexed gangster rap, okay? Because it doesn't get more gangster than a guy who took nine bullets and a guy who took five bullets and then they're beefing and then the, the group breaks up. But... I'd like to get back to 50s role in sort of the war in Iraq because, A, that's what the soldiers were listening to, you know what I mean, to get amped up and go into battle and take over that country, which is, it's mind-blowing from a logistics standpoint. It's not not moral, probably probably very bad, right? A lot of people died, RIP. Um, but to actually do that, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. But anyways, so 50, right? There's a video game. <laughs> it's literally... It's literally 50 Cent shooting in a desert in Iraq. And if you were to like Google it, just like 50 Cent video game uh, Iraq, something like that would come up. But it just sort of encapsulates the role that gangster music does play on the world stage, that group specifically, but also the fact that this isn't an organic thing. This is social engineering. And where, where it's been in the early 2000s to where it is today where they're explicitly talking about opiates, they're explicitly talking about uh, all these ludicrous substances 
explicitly. And people are listening to that in their ears all day, every day. It's insane that I personally ever listen to that shit. It's insane that millions and millions of people regularly listen to that stuff all day long as their number one uh, go-to for music, for a music genre. So I think that snapping a generation and the generation younger than us out of hip hop hypnosis via humor is probably one of the most important things that we can do. I think absolutely. (laughs) And I mean, it's, it's not at all slowing down. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, I, I just got sent (laughs) affirmations, doggy land kids, songs and nursery rhymes by Snoop Dogg. Apparently he's got a four kids, YouTube channel, doggy land. Then here's the thing. So he's targeting the kids, right? The Snoop Dogg character is targeting the kids with his, his content. Right. But what does Snoop Dogg do? Snoop Dogg smokes weed all day, every day. In the, one of the greatest books I've read, it's called drugs as weapons against us by John L. Potash. And what a lot of these artists do is there's they're basically used as mascots for, uh, drugs, whether it's pharmaceuticals or illegal drugs. Let's take Wiz Khalifa, for example, who normalized everyday, all day marijuana use. It was Wiz Khalifa and Lil Wayne, essentially, right? Prior to Wiz Khalifa in 2012, we would never see pot in music videos. He was the guy who put pot in his music videos in obnoxious amounts, and he was smoking it all day, every day. But that normalizes it to the populace. What do we see with yeah, uh, Overton know. window? Exactly. But it gets, it gets so much more ridiculous. Let's, let's take future. Future is one of the most popular artists out today. Two of his most popular songs. One of them is uh, the chorus is literally Molly Percocet, Molly Percocet. That's the chorus. Okay. And it's super popular. And there's a flute almost like he's the Pied Piper or some shit. Right. And then he's got his new song. It's a huge millions of, Dude, millions, millions, millions of streams. It's a uh, smoking dope turned me into a superhero. That's the chorus just over and over and over. So for me, I snapped out of hip hop hypnosis. When I started studying it sort of as an anthropologist, because I have to be honest in the fact that if these guys are competing li- linguistically, right, they're competing and they're killing each other sometimes, right? Um, I have to admit that's pretty damn entertaining and there's gang wars in between and there's, um, you know, social media battles from an entertainment standpoint, it's off the charts. Right. But in terms of listening to the music over and over again, that became something I couldn't do after I started studying it as an anthropologist. So specifically with me, I snapped out of hip hop hypnosis really between 2015 um, and 2019, 2020. And the reason why I, I snapped out of it because I was studying all the deaths that occur like every quarter, um, you know, 2017 to 2018 was outrageous. There was Mac can, Miller. Can you even back up a little bit yep, and absolutely. walk us through why you were drawn to it? How, you started to wake up to the truth of it. Like, cause this is in the novel through one of the characters that feels yeah. most like you. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's interesting to watch that evolution in the narrative form. But what was it like for you? Like, what was the first moment that you can remember where you're like, wait, this is not, this is not healthy. Okay. That's a great question. So for me, it started out pretty young, right? Who'd I look up to? I looked up to Eminem and 50 cent. 
And the thing is, the kids I looked up to also looked up to Eminem and 50 Cent. My uh, neighbor, great athlete, great guy, biggest Eminem fan ever. So you have an entire sort of uh, cohort looking up to these false idols. And then from there, they're coming out with music and it's entertaining and it's popular and it's whatever. And it's, it's very tribal when you're very young because you and your group of friends, you listen to a certain type of music and that's, that kind of identifies your click. Right. So for yeah, me, for me, it was like Blink yeah. 182. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me and my right. friend group and we imitated them with our instruments, at least with that type of music. They, they were such shitty guitar players that it was easy to uh, imitate and mm-hmm. we were at least playing music, you know, with, with the hip hop hypnosis, the most likely thing you'll do is maybe try to do some mumble rap these days, which is terrible. But anyway, it's very similar. It's a similar thing without getting you too off track, just how Blink-182, I remember they put out this one live album and it was like our treasure because we had to bootleg a copy because we weren't 18, so we couldn't buy it ourselves at Walmart and our parents went buy it for us. And they're just like in between their two minute super sped up crap songs. They just make really weird jokes about like their uncle molesting them and poop and things like really low level stuff. And we just thought it was so hilarious because it was so vulgar. And that just, that was, uh, those were our idols, man. That was what we did. And it's very similar. It's not really that different uh, other than instead of kind of training you up mentally to be a criminal gang, want to be gangster. That type of music was more like getting you to be a, a simping, you know, completely yeah, emasculated type. Yeah, they're, they all have different weapons. Um, for example, I think country music is just as bad as hip hop. Like country's music is really no different because instead of, you know, uh, glor- glorifying criminality, country music wants you to be a drunk idiot. Like a guy was playing it at work today and it's just all about getting drunk and being sad. Like all of the songs. So it's like there's different weapons for different demographics. But um, yeah, the hip hop stuff, and it's not like I'm out here rallying hey turn off that music kids it's using humor to point out the obvious like when you see a 19 year old 20 year old kid and he's bumping that music going down the street that car is a mobile mental asylum okay he doesn't look cool I literally witnessed this today when i was yeah. driving that uh i was actually getting gas and i just mm-hmm. heard this you know terrible sounding rickety subwoofer in a trunk <laughs> Yeah, And I looked over the street and it's this like white early twenties dude, but like listening to some terrible mumbling rapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all, it's the sacred cow of not only the early twenties, but guys well up into their forties, fifties, like, Oh, don't take away my rap music. This guy's my hero. He's sort of narrating uh, a life I want to live. And then I can vicariously live through this character that this guy is portraying. Right. So, once I got into, you know, the fifties and the M&Ms, it was unavoidable for, you know, kids my age growing up from there, it evolved into the Kanye's and the little Wayne's and the Wiz Khalifa's. But once 2017, 2018 rolled around and I, you know, actually it was really 2014. I was a huge, uh, little Wayne fan and I was also a young thug fan. So what ended up happening was, um, Little Wayne's tour bus got shot up in April of 2015. And it turned out the person who shot up Little Wayne's tour bus was the former road manager of Young Thug. 
And I'm like, oh my God, this is diabolical. So I got completely obsessed with that situation because I grew up like, oh wait, that Tupac guy died, that Biggie guy died, Kurt Cobain died. What what, what the hell's going on here? So once Wayne's tour bus got shot up in April of 2015, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is a huge fucking deal to me. It was a, a huge deal to me at the time. So I dived into all that research. Fast forward to 2023, Young Thug is incarcerated on Rico conspiracy. It turned out that he did order or he had something to do with an attempted assassination of Lil Wayne. Young Thug also was uh, rap partners with a guy by the name of Rich Homie Kwan. Rich Homie Kwan was, and I didn't know this until 2022, Rich Homie Kwan was managed by a man named Nut. Nut was like a gang leader slash music manager. Young Thug had Nut killed. And that's why uh, Young Thug and Rich Homie Kwan broke up as a, as a rap group. Now, Young Thug, Jeffrey Lamar Williams is incarcerated on Rico conspiracy charges. So that happened, right? 2014, 2015. I'm still sort of listening to it when something new comes out. Used to be a huge fan, but I'm sort of on the peripheral. I'm diving more into the anthropology, studying the criminality because the criminality, the beefs, the murders. Sorry, but it's fucking entertaining. It really is. Even if you don't like the music, the fact that these guys are uh, shooting at each other is and they're creating art. The art sucks, but they're still creating art as they do. So is fascinating. So I'm studying that 2014, 2015, 2017, 2018 rolls around and there's a big rapper death every quarter. Mac Miller, Nipsey Hussle, Lil Peep, XXX Tentacion, Juice World. So the 2017 to 2019 time period, I'm going into sort of the ritualistic aspect of it. I'm fully on board with the sort of music conspiracy genre. I've read all the books, Mark Devlin, Isaac Weissap, all of them, right? So I'm studying all these different deaths that are occurring. I'm seeing similar patterns. And I'm like, is this a ritual? Is this a sacrifice? Is this some just dirty, dirty plays with management? Are people financially benefiting from the, the artist's demise? Right. So I'm, I'm going back with all these different uh, theories. I'm studying all of them, uh, you know, from XX Tentacion's death to YNW Melly's double murder that he's currently on trial for right now. Um, all of that. And I, I was like, this is, I was like, this is ridiculous, dude. This is absolutely insane. All these guys are dirtbags. And the fact that I'm listening to this music is disgusting. And so I fully snapped out of hip hop hypnosis. I, uh, you know, through my own research, I was like, this is just gross, dude. I can't do this anymore. And, um, it was a really big moment for me, which you asked was, was actually putting on Lil Wayne's The Carter Five because I grew up a huge Lil Wayne fan. And then I put it on. And I'm, I'm like sick to my stomach, dude. I have like a physical reaction. I'm like, this music, this, this, this sucks. Like, I can't listen to this shit. This is all negative. It's absurd. And so that was, that was, that was for me a big moment. So I decided to take all my research and satirize it and create these characters and tell this tale of the charter, a millennial journey out of hip hop hypnosis. <laughs> it's really great. I'm glad we're talking about it because I'm starting to get more of the, references and jokes of the book 
mm-hmm. that I that would go over my head because I just like I don't know that Lil Wayne has albums called The Carter, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, Lil Wayne character in this book is Lil Stain. Yep, <laughs> it's Lil Stain. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. so the t- the title, the Charter, is mm-hmm. a reference to the Carter. That's mm-hmm. fun because philologically, you can even switch a C with the SH. So it's already there. It's in mm-hmm. there. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh man, so maybe I want to talk about yeah. I want to talk I want to read this from okay. the book. Okay. I mentioned yeah. that I wanted to read this. It was the point where I was like this is really important. <laughs> and I, I you know, I've heard this kind of thing before here and yeah. there, but I've never read this article. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is it's a little long. So at any point if you want to just jump in and make commentary, I encourage that. That way we can maybe break up some of the reading with some commentary on what is in here. That way, some of the points don't go past us as we're going through this. Anyway, this is a testimony, if you will, called The Secret Meeting That Changed Rap Music and Destroyed a Generation. Do you know if the person who put this out, uh, who wrote this, ever was identified or came forward, or was this totally anonymous? Totally anonymous to my knowledge. So and just so you know, I, I, I kind of uh, satirized it a little bit. I exaggerated. I took the essay and I sort of, uh, you know, incorporated some things of my own. Okay. Okay. So yeah. maybe you can let us know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which points you let you, uh, you satirized this. Okay. Is it, so it's okay to read this though. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Hello. After more than 20 years, I've finally decided to tell the world what I witnessed in 1991, which I believe was one of the biggest turning points in popular music, racial and spiritual warfare, and ultimately American society. I have struggled for a long time weighing the pros and cons of making this story public as I was reluctant to implicate the individuals who were present that day. So I have decided to leave out names and the details that may risk my personal well-being and that of those who were, like me, dragged into something they weren't ready for, something the world at large wasn't ready for. Between the late 80s and early 90s, I was what you may call a decision maker with one of the more established companies in the music industry. I came from Europe in the early 80s and quickly established myself in the business. The industry was different back then. Since technology and media weren't accessible to people like they are today, the industry had more control over the public and had the means to influence them any way it wanted. This may explain why in early 1991, I was invited to attend a closed-door meeting with a small group of music business insiders to discuss rap music's new direction. Little did I know that we would be asked to participate in one of the most unethical and destructive business practices I've ever seen. The meeting was held at a private residence on the outskirts of Los Angeles. I remember about 25 to 30 people being there, most of them familiar faces. Speaking to those I knew, we joked about the theme of the meeting as many of us did not care for rap music and failed to see the purpose of being invited to a private gathering to discuss its future. Among the attendees was a small group of unfamiliar faces who stayed to themselves and made no attempt to socialize beyond their circle. Based on their behavior and formal appearances, they didn't seem to be in our industry. 
Our casual chatter was interrupted when we were asked to sign a confidentiality agreement, preventing us from publicly discussing the information presented during the meeting. Needless to say, this intrigued and disturbed many of us. The agreement was only a page long, but very, very clear on the matter and consequences which stated that violating the terms would result in job termination. We asked several people what this meeting was about and the reason for such secrecy, but couldn't find anyone who had answers for us. A few people refused to sign and walked out. What uh, what page is this real quick? This is page 50 right now. Okay, 50, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Do you want to read some some of the reactions from the the characters as well? Is that (laughs) it? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because like I'll just Okay, so in this scene, he's doing a great job of reading um sort of my satirized version of this essay, but our characters are sort of reacting as this is occurring. So you'll see there's sort of uh different levels of hip hop hypnosis. Yeah, the right? one character who's reading it to the other friends, he's the yes. one who's like Al Kobe. Dog, who's researching yep. hip hop and he's snapping out of the hypnosis. Right. And then yeah. <laughs> so we asked, well, if you can read what you can, because some of their commentary is rather. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm into it. Well, I'll read yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> I'll just read this. Part. Yeah, this is great. Give people an idea of what is going yeah. on here. Okay. We asked several people what this meeting was about and the reason for such secrecy, but couldn't find anyone who had answers for us. A few people refused to sign and walked out. No one stopped them. I was tempted to follow, but curiosity got the best of me. A man who was a part of the unfamiliar group collected the agreements from us. Yo, Chet grumbled, taking a drag from his Newport and soiling the butt with orange Cheeto powder. The fuck is this shit even about? Get to the point, my G. No, hold on. I want to hear this. Rick shot back, naturally taking command. He leaned forward on the sofa, hanging on to Colby's every word. Y'all has fuck. Chet snickered, waving away his words with his pinky ring-adorned right hand. (laughs) Colby went on. Quickly after the meeting began, one of my industry colleagues, who shall remain nameless like everyone else, thanked us for attending. He then gave the floor to a man who only introduced himself by first name and gave no further details about his personal background. He spoke with an accent I couldn't recognize and had a strange, ageless quality about him. He smelled faintly of sulfur. Now, did you add that? Yeah, I, okay. add I was like, like when I read that, I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Still, I think there's probably something to that. Yeah. I think he was the owner of the residence, but it was never confirmed. He, he briefly praised all of us for the success we'd achieved in our industry and congratulated us for being selected as part of this small group of decision makers. At this point, I began to feel slightly uncomfortable. The speaker went on to tell us that the respective companies we represented had invested in a very profitable industry, which could become even more rewarding with our active involvement. So it was like stocks and bonds and some shit? (laughs) Piped up Dusty through a mouthful of Cheetos, barely listening. He explained that the companies we work for had invested millions into the building of privately owned prisons and billions in pharmaceutical firms and that our positions of influence in the music industry would actually impact the profitability of these investments. Rappers would be used to advertise the use of opiates in their lyrics and music videos, starting small with the use of lean, 
an opiate-infused liquid mixed with soda. As the decade passed, they'd be naming specific brand-name opiates in their rhymes. I remember many of us in the group immediately looking at each other in confusion. Syrup, said Rick ominously. Colby nodded. Stains, which is Lil Wayne, Stains' famous styrofoam cup were playing in his mind's eye. He'd just been using it on TV for all to see. Pure product placement, and it had worked like a charm. Yeah. So, yeah, as this goes on, I think so this, this is kind funny, of starts, but it's true, right? Because yeah, this Lil starts Wayne, to set up what I wanted to get into, which is yeah. how this entire rap music thing is a advertisement for pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely, yeah. So Lil Wayne essentially normalized the use of opiates via his plastic or styrofoam cup. He actually wasn't the originator. The originator, it originated in Houston with a guy by the name of Pimp C and uh, from a group called UGK. They, they sort of put it on the map, but Lil Wayne took their, their, their stuff, essentially their idea of drinking a liquid opiate mixed with soda and putting ice cubes in it and calling it lean and drinking it publicly and then drinking it in front of millions and millions of impressionable people. So from there, this opiate becomes a part of everybody's uh, vision, right? And it becomes normalized. So that that kind of encapsulates the insidious nature of uh, hip hop hypnosis, because let's say you're a casual Wayne fan. You've seen this man drink opiates thousands of times, right? And uh, that has an effect on the population for sure. <laughs> yeah. You want to see something funny, dude? I got a, a Lizzo shirt on. This is, uh, she's the final boss of uh, hip hop hypnosis, Lizzo. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I saw this kid like uh, ironically rocking a Lizzo uh, shirt in the gym and I just saw it and I took his idea. I couldn't help it. So here I am. Okay. So it doesn't even seem like it needs to be explained how obvious this trick is that mm-hmm. the same investment firms, if you will, or individuals or groups or whatever are pushing this stuff into the music, through, the culture through music and then profiting on it, going up and down, mm-hmm. selling of the drugs, incarcerating of the prisoners. Every, every detail of it is a mm-hmm. big profit farm. So the question is really the only question I have, because it's obvious that this is true, is like, are demons behind it? And for a point to a point to the column of demons would be something I've always thought, especially how like, you know, as bad, bad fish bear says, there are a lot of songs with the word Percocet in them. Yeah. Well, just, you know, one thing I noticed a long time ago is how these pharmaceutical drugs, their names read like something out of a, demonology grimoire you know like Zizol <laughs> mm-hmm. Percocet sounds like demonic so you know are they summoning demons just in the music itself through the names of these uh, substances and I think there's a good argument for that because the you know whenever you're on these things it replaces your consciousness with something else hell even alcohol does to a, a large degree if mm-hmm. you go far with it so yeah what do we what do we what do you think of this I think quite a bit about that because a rapper by the name of XXX Tentacion, Jose Ricardo Onfroy, was asked during a live stream. Somebody asked him, Hey, are you a demon? And he said, No, but I have demonic energy. And he said that flatly. 
And he said it rather plainly. And I think he was being very honest when he said that. It was my research of that particular artist who's huge. Uh, he died, but even in death, he's a huge, huge artist. Very, uh, His fans are sycophantic freaks for the most part. But he said that he was very honest. But if you look at that kid's Twitter profile to this day, it's all Crowley. And he was into some very dark occultic stuff at a very young age. And I think through there and sort of the Faustian bargain of doing whatever it takes to make it in the music industry opens up a portal to the demonic realm for sure. Um, another great example is YNW Melly. And if you just Google this guy, he's currently on trial for double murder. So of his friends who were in a rap group with him, YNW Juvie and YNW Sag Chaser, both shot and killed allegedly by YNW Melly. He could be the first rapper to get the death penalty. So is in studying those two particular cases where I said to myself, this dude looks like a demon. Exactly. Exactly. It looks like here's a demon. the thing, right? Look at look at little Wayne nowadays. He's going to look like a demented. Pi- he already looks like a demented pirate. You know what I mean? They're all going to look like trash and this guy already looks like trash. So this guy, this particular case here, he, uh, he also did a, a school shooting incident. He literally shot, uh, at one of one of his uh at his high school he shot at people at his high school um he did that and uh then he this is where it gets crazy man there's little stain yeah that's little stain anyways with uh ynw melly he has a his most famous song is called murder on it on my mind where he talks about killing somebody in a car and then guess what it happens he ends up allegedly he's on trial killing two of his best friends in his uh car he has those two friends that he killed in an interview uh, with Adam 22 of the no jumper channel full name, Adam grand Mason is his full name. Go figure uh, in an interview. He talks about how he has his friends tattooed on his uh, sort of temple area here. And then he ends up killing them and now he's on trial. So it was like, and he's a mainstream artist. Like I'll be at work or something like that. And people will be like, Oh yeah, I like YNW Melly. It's like, dude, he committed a, a double murder. You know what I mean? It's, it's absolutely outrageous. You know, so there's a lot of high, big ritual stuff that occurs when millions and millions of people are watching these music videos. They get emotionally attached to these artists and then these artists go bye-bye and their sales skyrocket the day they pass away and um, people probably financially benefit and uh, it causes a big hoopla and then that, that's it. That artist is gone and then there's a new artist to take their place. Yeah, the the fetishizing and idolization of these artists, yeah, shard air really. quotes, is <laughs> like in itself the possession. Yeah, you know, like if you are idolizing and fetishizing any of these characters, they are taking up real estate in your mind. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the repetitive. I think about this all the time. You know, there's things in my life that before I realized that you can never unsee what you've seen, you can never unhear what you've hear, heard. And I was, you know, before I was more cautious with my inputs, it, think about the on repeat nature of this. It is akin to a type of possession, especially when you get possessive of this genre and of these artists and self identify with it. It's, um, you know, I don't want this conversation to just be like, oh, they're so terrible. This is so terrible. But I do want to maybe 
<laughs> get your take on how we can improve our rhetoric through humor to disarm this giant booby trap that's been laid out for the youth yeah. for many, many decades. It's this, baby. We did it. Because I figured, man, <laughs> humor will snap through a good spell and making fun of these false idols and slaughtering the most sacred cow to a lot of guys our age around our age is still hip hop music to because they are under the belief system that, Oh, this is entrepreneurial. Oh, the beats are so good. All oh, these guys are just trying to make it in business, man. Just You're trying racist to if you don't like it. Probably exactly something like that to that effect. It's so outrageous, but to put things into context, a big moment for me was I was at work and there was this baby boomer and he was belting out this Rolling Stone song word for word. Okay. And I thought to myself, I was like, I was disgusted, disgusted, right? But then I realized I knew all the words to that Rolling Stone song as well. And now if I think about all the, the hip hop lyrics that I know, right? What a big fucking waste of time. So instead of, you know, studying or listening to hip hop in my car, I, I study Russian, right? I try to learn a new language. Very, very entry level, not an Oh, cool. I'm doing that with Greek. <laughs> exactly. So do you yeah. listen to it in your car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the best time to do it. I'm like exactly driving around, like, you know, repeating after the audio. It's awesome. It is because I'm in my car two hours a day. So instead of listening to garbage lyrics, whether it's rock, whether it's hip hop, um, I'm trying to learn a new language. I'm not anti-music by any means. I love music. And the thing with me is ever since I've lessened my appetite for music, it sounds so much better. Like if I hear if I hear an Alanis Morissette song in the bank. I'm like, oh my God, this is the best song I've ever heard. <laughs> so Another, you're, like less, you're not as desensitized, do you mean? Exactly. And I think that the iPod really made people's, not even the iPhone, I'm talking the iPod, really made people's appetites for music completely insatiable. It's absurd to have thousands and thousands of songs in the palm of your hand, just on demand. Oh, I'm bored of that song. New song, 30 seconds later, new song. It's training you like a monkey to be. Well, it goes even further with yeah. streaming services and Spotify, of course. Yeah. I, I never really use those for the most part, but um, yeah, it's uh, but like if you were to go to, let's say a college campus or anywhere, you will see people with or a gym, people just with their headphones in all the time. is kind of an absurd thing to it's do. The, the college campus is where it's the worst. I remember yes. that. Yes. You was, especially when those beats headphones were popular. That was the most absurd things. Kids and didn't podcasts weren't that popular yet. So it was just like everywhere you went, everybody was in their own pod bubble. Yeah. Like, oh you know, the God. iPod is the perfect name for it because when you have those earbuds in and you're dead to the world around you since, you know, in terms of sensory input. Yeah. It's literally like the, the symbolic being in your own little pod, your pod people. <laughs> you're, dude, that's such a good point. I never thought of it like that, but it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's the AirPods. <laughs> yeah. So think about being in a pod where some man, some popular pirate looking group, whether it's YNW Melly or a little way, whoever, they're normalizing these, this most absurd behavior, right? But there's millions and millions of people in these pods. So we got to snap them out of it via humor, right? That's the only way to do it. You can smile and laugh and get out of your, break out of your shell, get out of your pod. Um, some people are too far gone and, you know, because, you know, music in my view is probably the most powerful magic in all of the realm for good. Well, or Dylan for bad. is saying in the chat here, yeah. as someone who is in Hollywood, he's saying the movie industry wasn't 
dark at all in relatives to the uh, the music industry. That's the, a good the movie point. industry was more about sex and drugs, but the music industry is, as he says, next level dark occult. I'll take his yes. word for it. He was there. 100%, man. I Doing the research that I've done and doing the reading that I've done and seeing people sort of enter that industry and exit, like, yo, I'm getting out of here type shit. Like, yep, that sounds totally valid. And it's really uh, <laughs> insidious how they sell, you know, we, you and I being up here doing this to some degree are acting out the implantation of the dream of like, if I can just get a following, if I can just be, if I can just make it big, you know, if I, can, if I can just have a little fame, then my life will be great. That we were constantly indoctrinated with through music more than anything else as youth. Right. And the internet age has made everybody, not everybody, but mo- like most people are trying to do something like that, trying to influence, trying to be streamers. And it's fine. You know, I like the decentralization of people's entertainment and information. I think it's yeah. good. But we have to get real. Like I have to get real about that, that how how much of my behavior, how much of me doing this as a profession is motivated by I want as many people to like me as possible. <laughs> versus I want to share useful information and help pull people up. And, uh, you know, most of the time, I think I stay pretty good in the lane of doing this for the right reasons. But those seeds are in there, dude. Those seeds of like, I want to be popular. I want to be liked are definitely there. Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. For me personally, I want to sell books to 10,000 people and I hope they love it. That's my personal goal. And I hope they, they enjoy my book every year. I want to come out with a book every year. I got another one coming out this fall. And that's, that's what I hope to achieve because I think that that'll be sustainable in the sense that um, I don't think that selling like a, a book, right? It requires a lot of volume. I see the, the book game for me personally changing. I think that people will sell, authors will sell, uh, you know, a thousand books or 10,000 books for a hundred dollars. They'll make it leather bound. They'll make it an uh, incredible product. And then they will sell it for a hundred dollars versus trying to sell, um, you know, a hundred thousand paperbacks, right? Because the game is rigged. All these games are rigged, whether it's social media, whether it's music, we all know incredibly talented musicians that will not and do not make it in the music industry because it's a rigged game. So in terms of making it, Like I have a friend who's an incredible songwriter, incredible musician, incredible voice, writes his own songs, makes his own music videos. He's a lot more talented than people in the music industry. Not that they're not talented, because the thing is, a lot of them are super talented, but he's he's really good, right? He plays at local shows and he rocks the house. He's already made it in a sense. This sort of unattainable. Yeah, like the local thing, being a local hometown hero, that's great. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's a good enough level of making it if you can Mm -hmm. get there. Yeah. But yeah, there is sort of this, uh, I think that 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 kind of echoes the idol worship, right? Like if you, uh, if you ever read, um, I think it's the scenes from Laurel Canyon, weird scenes from Laurel Canyon by a guy named, uh, I forget his last name, but that's the book. He talks about how, a lot of these big time rock groups are, are directly linked to intelligence. <laughs> so, you know, they're a part of social engineering. What is that McGowan? Yes. That's, that's the guy McGowan. I read his, that's a, that's a classic. And then Mark Devlin goes into some of this stuff as well. Um, so the entertainment game is it's not without talent because let's take a Ariana Grande, for example, she's been trained since birth 
yeah, oh, she's an Illuminati pop princess, whatever. She's been trained since birth. She can fucking sing, man. She can like she can sing. Like she can sing. Uh there's this one uh Stephen Colbert little video where she can sing like Britney Spears, she can sing sing like Christina Aguilera on command and nail it. So it's not like these people aren't talented. A lot of them are super talented and they're trained since birth to fill their roles. But you know, in terms of uh wanting to be um I I went through a phase of wanting to be a rapper. I recorded a mixtape when I was 19, me and my buddy. You know what I mean? There's never a wrong time. So there's like a little bit, all the four characters of the friend group, there's a little bit of you in all of them, I bet. You're absolutely right. That's that's 100% correct. Um, even Dustin, and even some I'm of the sorry. cops. Because there's also, there's not just the group of uh, teens. There's also these cops. Um, officer. The FBI guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Denning and Stantler. Oh, and yeah, yeah. We should get into like what you may have uncovered about intelligence agencies and their monitoring or even directing of some of this uh, this stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Keep, keep going where you're going, but I want to put that on the table. Yeah, so it's, it's all co- like I cover like all sort of phases of the game with this intertwined plot. We got cops that, you know, he was a cop and he turns into an FBI agent. We got music record executives. We've got uh, a group of girls, a group of guys. We got these rappers and they're all intertwined with these different plots. And you got to wait to the end. The end is hilarious. Um, Cause I kind of satirized the year 2020 at the end. But um, yeah, I would say that, what were we talking about? I totally forgot. Oh yeah. Intelligence. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's social engineering, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that that's basically it. So. <laughs> All right. So there's some good comments here from the chat. Okay. <laughs> this one though, from Dylan, I think is worth addressing. He said, uh, this was earlier in the stream. No one bought more rap albums than middle-class white women. Now 23% of them in America are single moms has to be a correlation. Yeah. I mean, it's on women and men in the sense, cause you know, getting hoes for the guys and like, you know, leave, leaving them leaving the kids behind that's all very glorified in the the rap music as well but what well, i think is interesting is this thread of how is rap this generation's like 60s if you will is absolutely. that early gangster rap thing because you brought up uh you know hearing the rolling stone song and all that my mom for example she has music from 60s 70s 80s 90s doesn't go much outside of that but there's like the same music that she's been listening to for my whole life and assuming before i was born and she just always like i shouldn't say always i'm not trying to trash talk you mom love you but you know there's a lot of a lot of her music maybe 80 percent of it is from this chunk of all the same on repeat like i would get so tired of that but the point being it's not just that generation that is getting the program from that music, but also their kids and how like the way the boomers, some of the boomers just never wanted the party to end. And Mm -hmm. so they get stuck on the same music decade after decade and never evolved past that maturity level. You know, they're like permanent teenagers. I think the same thing could be going on where people of our generation, like millennials starting to have kids now are likely going to unwittingly expose their kids to the same exact type of musical programming, even though it's not the hip or trendy thing anymore, because it's from decades before. But it's like, once it gets in there, 
like a broken record, it it's on repeat permanently in the consciousness of the collective. Great points, Chance. And I want to bring up two specific things from Dylan's comment. The first thing that came to my mind when he talked about the the hoification, if you will, let's talk about a term like baby mama. Okay, the term baby mama, that term wasn't used in 1999. Okay, maybe 2003, 2004, that term became part of the lexicon, but it's an absolutely absurd term. But nowadays, everybody knows what that means. Um, that's kind of an example of hip hop culture that's, you know, totally inorganic, um, not grassroots. It's very top down culture affecting the populace. And something you said, um, Chance, that I think is really important is about people our age having kids. There's no way you can put on freaking gangster rap or any of the in front of your kids. A huge turning point for me was when a cousin of mine. He started having kids and I used to see this dude at rap concerts and stuff. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, damn, he has kids now. There's no way you can put on that Nipsey hustle mixtape. You know what I'm saying? Or some uh, absurd Eminem or uh little Uzi Vert, little peep, you name it. Like you cannot put that. You'd be absurd. You'd be crazy to put that on, you know, in front of your kids. Right. Huge turning point for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One of the funniest parts of the book so far was when they, the characters go to a little stain concert. Yeah. <laughs> the absurdity yeah. <laughs> of that. How much of that was based on, you know, your own experience going to concerts? And can you talk about what I've never been to a big rap show? So maybe tell us more about that. I went to my first rap show in uh, 2007. We were juniors and Lil Wayne was like the hottest. This was like prior to the Carter three. This is like, he's the hardest, he's the hottest artist on the planet at this point. Prior to the Carter three, it hasn't even been out yet. Summer Jam, Summer Jam 2007 presented by Jam and 94.5. Went to that, saw some absurd behavior. When did you graduate high school? Uh, 2000, not till 2010. 2010. Okay. I got a yeah. couple of years on you. I'm almost out. Yeah. Got it. So, um, yeah, went there, um, saw some absurd behavior, participated in the, some absurd behavior. The cool thing was to smoke weed at the concert. I thought that was incredible. I thought it was amazing because I was 17 and that, you know, that was all like, Oh wow, this is so cool. <laughs> Looking back, it's like, dude, you're fucking, what are you doing? But the kid? way that got normalized so quick, it is. I, I can't remember the last time I went to a concert and it wasn't filled with weed smoke. I mean, now right. it's like even recreationally legal, but it's been that way for a while. Yeah. And so Lil Wayne at this concert, he's so messed up, dude. His eyes, there's no white in his eyes. It's all dark pink. I didn't think he was going to make it. He's just like, yeah, I'm a little, but he stopped performing. <laughs> like he went like, he just started posing. Um, and just, he stopped performing. He's just like, but it was cool at the time. People were going nuts. And then um, I went to a few uh, Wiz Khalifa shows because me and my friend group were into that. But nowadays, Wiz Khalifa to me is like the most talentless hack in the game. He hasn't progressed as an artist at all. He just talks about smoking joints. And it's like, you're a tool uh, for the establishment. You know what I mean? Um, that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. I've seen a few other groups, people under the stairs. Um, Hootie and the Blowfish, does that count as a uh, hip-hop group? <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably not, but yeah. Oh, yeah, and uh, Ishan just brought up the uh, yeah. so Travis this World is a good concert. One. This is a good one. I know all about that. Let's, let's think about this. Travis Scott 
Tavis Stock. Sounds pretty similar, right? Travis Stock, Travis Scott, Tavis Stock. I mean, yeah, Tavis Stock. Tav is in the Tavis yeah. Stock Institute. You um, sounded a lot like Gabe right now. Yeah, yeah. Let's do this social engineering. But let's take it a step further. Travis Scott, traveling Scotsman. Okay. A traveling Scotsman would be like a Scottish Rite Freemason. Well, you they know what else have, Scott means? Yeah. Taxed. Oh, like oh okay. Scott, it, like in the, the origin of the word Scotted land is taxed yeah. land, crown land. Thank you, Dylan, yeah. for uh, for that gravy in one of yeah. your books. I think Holy so Sailors. I, so, yeah. So it's like somebody like Travis Scott. It's like he's so overplayed and his music sucks and I don't find him to be likable. So his, his popularity is just uh, something that's engineered. It's not something that has grown from the grass. It's something that uh, is just dropped from a, from a giant machine in a, an assembly line, you know? Yeah, man. So tell us, uh, I think this would be fun to go over some of the parody characters yeah, <laughs> sure. in the, in the book. Can you yeah. want to do that for us? Absolutely. Yeah. So I got the full list here. So in the book, I, I talk about my intent writing the book. Uh, and welcome to the Charterverse. It's a parallel universe. Warning, this is not a family-friendly book. I do an introduction where I talk about sort of, uh, you know, my intro and outro of hip-hop hypnosis. Um, then we'll talk about some of the characters because I just like to lay it out and just be, you can't really see it, but I like to be pretty straightforward. Um, we got Kobe. He's a millennial blogger fascinated by hip hop culture. He's friends with Rick, Chet, and Dusty. We got Chet Dorsey. He's the loose cannon of the group, drug dealer, inspiring rapper. Will do whatever it takes to become successful in the rap industry. Rick is his rival within their crew. So there's Rick. There's Righteous Rick. Uh, he's an athletic, righteous young man, the moral backbone of the crew. He disagrees with everything Chet does, and they, they have some interactions. Then there's Dusty, the mediocre slob follower. My personal favorite characters are... Uh, my favorite character is probably Robert Denning. He's the former New Orleans police officer turned FBI agent and alcoholic with an old school sense of justice. And he's the father of one of the girls in the group. And um, so there's the group of girls, Cassandra, you'll read all about her, Stacey, uh, Cindy Lou. Um, then we got Carl Kowinski. He's a hip hop executive owner of 600 records, pretends to care about his clients, but his main concern is profiting from their demise. Larry, the lawyer, He's an attorney with a with a special interest in the entertainment industry, uh, and a cult practitioner with esoteric knowledge. Knowledge, friends with Kowinski, Turdman, and uh, Anton. Oh, yeah, Turdman is Birdman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then instead of instead of young drug, young thug, there's young drug. Uh, so we got yeah. This and what's the uh, what's the name of Turdman's record label? Uh, Trash Money Records. Instead of cash money, right? Is that what yeah. the real one yeah, is? Yeah, it's trash money. Yeah. <laughs> trash money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we got Timmy Carlton Winfrey. We got Triple Hex, who is based on XXX Tentacion. I just call him Triple Hex. Uh, and a few others. So yeah, like honestly, a movie that did inspire me. You've seen the movie Crash, right? It's no. like the oh, okay. Well, it's like this race relations movie but the cool thing about the movie is like all these plots are intertwined so that's what happens with the book like one chapter will be the group of friends another chapter will be the cops uh which gets really funny another chapter will be you know the rappers and it all it all intermingles and you'll see yeah yeah i love plots like that Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh for as terrible as it as it was without especially if you remove the laugh track that was one of the things i enjoyed about seinfeld for example is a bunch of random plots that then all, like cross each other's paths and then all 
converge in a like a collision (laughs) as a finale so looking forward to continuing it i you know once i got going on it i didn't want to put it down it is entertaining i'm not joking uh and jenny vouches for this that i was legit laughing (laughs) out loud Mm -hmm. even though (laughs) you did such a good job of uh keeping the theme of this is shitty (laughs) yeah that's the theme because like you know, it's a giant metaphor that, you know, essentially rap is crap and you got the charter and it's sort of the realization of this. You see these, uh, these characters sort of go in and out of this culture and you'll see what happens with Chet. Not going to give it away, um, but it's going to be pretty hilarious. I'm going to guess he's Chet. either going to, well, he probably should his pants. <laughs> he's okay. Let's, and he'll probably be dead or in jail. One of those things. Or he could make it as a successful rapper. Uh, (laughs) Oh yeah. He's got, he's got what it takes. I'm not going to tell you it could be one of those three things. You know what I mean? Um, It could be all three. Yeah. Another character is uh, Anton 44 and Anton 44 is based on Adam 22. Adam 22 is this big uh, hip hop podcaster. And uh, yeah. So I like to make fun of him a lot as well. Yeah. So I, you know, this book, a lot of it is over my head because I don't know the culture, but it is tailor made and crafted for somebody who was raised by this music as, you know, our parents have tended to be absent from any curation of our cultural intake. The music, the video games, the movies, the TV, that's really what raised guys around 30 like you and me. Mm-hmm. As good as our parents may have been in, in many ways, it's like, they had already, their defenses had already been breached by this exact type of op done through the 60s culture, 70s music culture. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's almost like a, the television was sort of a Trojan horse. And from there, uh, you know, the personal computer was able to enter. And with no sort of uh, safeguards in between, it's a whole hoopla of social engineering. Um, yeah, and you really capture that well with uh, Colby's father, Roger, yeah. was it? Yeah, Roger, yeah. I mean, how <laughs> many of us out there who are 30-something, our parents cannot exist without, one or both of our parents cannot exist without the TV on. It must be on. Yeah, that's a big thing with the baby boomer generation for sure. Um, I don't even like being in the same room. It's like a it's TV. a status symbol. Like, it makes them feel like, I've made it. I've got a big TV. Everything's fine, right? Yeah, well... People don't watch television. They worship it and it tells them everything they need to know and they don't question it. The thing is, I can't criticize them, right? When I'm looking at my phone way more than I should. So I used to go through that phase like, yo, just stop watching TV. But at the same time, I'm looking at my phone all the time. So I could make the argument that these devices are even more insidious than uh, the one that a lot of the baby boomers do worship. Yeah, we take it with us. Yeah. But the the boomers, it's like they got TV and the phone because yeah, <laughs> love you, dad. But when you're not uh, when you're not actively watching the TV, you are on the phone. You know, I honestly uh, think that they in a lot of ways, they may be more susceptible to the, the phone stuff than us. You yeah. Know, less defenses. They're less technologically adept, a lot of them. And so it, you know, hits harder. Well, what do you think the solution is? 
to get more in touch with nature. Cause to me, the solution is I, I, the iPhone's incredible, dude. Like, cause I, I, I upgraded from the iPhone six to the iPhone 13 and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the most incredible device known to man. Um, but the thing is it's, it's almost too good, right? It's too good. It's, it's something that, um, needs to be sort of looked at as a vice, but ultimately it should be used as a tool. And I think that is what separates a computer and a smartphone potentially from the television. You cannot use the television as a tool. You can absolutely use an iPhone and a, and a computer as a tool. I think it might help to, instead of looking at it like, oh, there's, there's some black magic going on in the music industry, or mm-hmm. there's some mind control going on with the, the technology. I would say maybe just go ahead and frame it all as magic. (laughs) Yes. No one has ever satisfactorily even attempted to explain to me how the hell the thing works. The phone, you know, Mm -hmm. like this, it's magic. It's a black, a black reflective fondle slab that contains all the information that is curated and allowed by the masters. (laughs) It's, It's insane. Yeah. And it can be, it's a tool though. And it can be magic is a tool. It's all magic though. I think that will help to, I know most people wouldn't be ready to jump into that mindset, but to look at it like every, everything you let through your filters is you're deciding what you want your internal world to be. And then as you populate your internal world with what it is you accept through your filters in the external, it then reflects back out into the external world and you get more of that in your external world. So we're, you know, this is, and I mean, the metaphor I'm using is literal because this thing, if it, if the screen isn't powered on, it is a mirror. You can see yourself in it. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because um, instead of looking at it, like it's a weapon against you, which it can be, but in a way it's like, you're doing it to yourself. Look in the mirror. Who is in this box? It's you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's my opinion on all the technology in general is that it's, well, predicated on plagiarizing our innate spiritual capacities that we have anyway. There's like, there's a guy in the chat who's just like nonstop talking about, uh, <laughs> um, you know, out of body travel and, and stuff like that. But we have those capabilities. How many of us have trained and honed them? Not many, right? And that's not a, I, I'm the same way. I'm guilty of that too, that I'm, I'll take the shortcut. I'll take what's handed to me over you know, learning how to have a a psychic conversation instead, (laughs) but that's totally possible. And I think a lot of people in this community experience that with, uh, with our streams or with other streamers, they like, I think Owen's streams have the most uh, evident, crazy psychic synchronicities as he opens a letter that was sent days, many days before, and it contains exactly what he was just talking about. So the, the whole, to me, what helps is, to get out of the victim victimization mindset is to look at it like it's not happening to me. I'm happening to it. And that even applies to the culture as it's being created. You know, the whatever demons might be influencing the musicians, maybe you're, you know, whispering in the ears of the people developing this technology. Cause I don't see how this came about in it. <laughs> Somebody just thought of it up. <laughs> like there's always, there's tons of accounts of, technological innovations being channeled or downloaded or given in a dream or, or what have you. And so instead of maybe putting a, it's a good or bad on it, just say it is what it is, but our responsibility is how we use it. It's always back to our behavior. And I think our behavior can even change 
the nature of the culture in the long term. Because in my my opinion, what it, we're running up against when we talk about demons, I would like to just de-supernaturalize that a bit and we're, we're back it up. <laughs> One of my favorite lines to laugh out loud, laugh out loud lines in the book is you're like talking about somebody driving away, but you're like, they scared it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny shit like that. But my point being the, the demonic realm mm-hmm. is the on the, the, uh, the, the disassociated human soul that is no longer in a body. And so to whatever degree we are internally fragmented and compartmentalized and self-limiting the flow of our life force energy, that's the degree to which this demonic realm has influence over us in the external. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be unintegrated, unhealed, you know, di- in the illusion of separation type of, you know, an aspect of consciousness that's doing that. It's a developmental stage. It's a developmental phase, but the problem comes in when it's always like they're doing it or are we accepting it? You know, like, let's just get out of the paradigm of us or them and just look at them as a, as a mere reflection of us. So to whatever degree we fear our own success, we fear our own innate power. That's the degree to which we're vulnerable to manipulators who want to keep us in the phase of the hero's journey where we are in codependence and victim uh, mindset, right? So the more that we can heal our own inner division, the less the external stuff has any effect on us. And then the more of us do that, (laughs) the less demonic energy there is going on to begin with. Because I think it's like people that are stay psychologically, that are psychologically broken when they die and afraid to face themselves in life well, then they're definitely going to be afraid to face themselves in the whatever is afterlife. And they'll stay in this disincorporate uh, thing where they want to latch onto and re and instigate the ability to experience whatever their attachments were in another human body, in another host as what you call entity attachments. All this makes sense. Yeah. I see what you're saying. This is how I think of the demonic realm. I just visualize these demons as flies flying around feces. You know what I'm saying? So it's like they they're not they're nothing compared to the owl dog. They can't they uh, they don't phase me. You know what I'm saying? I have low opinions of them. So um I see what you're saying, but like, yeah, people always go down that road. Oh, you know, the music industry is so evil. They're probably right. <laughs> they're probably very, very, very right. I think what we can do is sort of uh be aware of that instead of dwelling on their bullshit, let you know, create our own symphonies. You know what I'm saying? Whether that be uh, going to work every day and doing your thing or uh, creating a podcast, creating your own work of art, you know, because uh, I think the human voice is the greatest instrument there is. So people can, you know, dwell on the, the music industry. Um, I That's what made me chose to do a satirical book. Because I was going down that path. You started it out as maybe a research book, not a satirical yes, book? Yes, yes. So I was going into all these different uh, deaths that occurred within the hip-hop industry. And, and I was you're like, like you know oh, what? I'm just going to bring more hell to people if I do it this way. Exactly. So I'm like, I'd rather snap people out of hip-hop hypnosis via humor, via this you know, fiction tale. Fiction's a lot of fun, man, because you can take the truth. And you can be more truthful with fiction, in my view, a lot of times more so than nonfiction. So, 
for me, instead of being another, you know, McGowan or check check out my expose on the the music industry, everybody kind of knows. Instead of doing that, I sort of uh, chose to create my own satirical lane. My next book is satirical as well. It's comedy. This book I would call a comedy crime classic. The next book is about a surf assassin. It's the plight of a surf assassin. And it's sort of in the same vein where I take some What's of these- that. Yeah, exactly. So this, uh, the next book that hopefully will be out this fall is about this uh, surfer who goes to work. He has an incident at work and um, a guy passes away. Unfortunately, somebody witnesses it. And the guy who witnesses the murder um, ends up becoming a benefactor. And he's hired essentially as a surf assassin. <laughs> and it's, that's my lane. So it's like diving through the mud, the, the, the drudgery of, uh, you know, some of these, some of this evil was actually a blessing in disguise because it ended up for me, I ended up creating my own lane from that. Nobody's writing comedy crime fiction books. You know what I mean? Satirical with little stain. Nobody's doing tragic comedy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tragic comedy. That's actually the best way to put it because it's sort of tragic what's happened. uh, But that's such a cool blend. Like that's, you know, is that that's more of a integrated wholeness mm-hmm. rather than wearing the tragedy mask or the comedy mask. It's like, yep. you're, you're bringing both into it. Yeah. Cause you can't really have one without the other. There's sort of a tragedy lurking behind the comedy, but in order to face this multi, yeah, it's multi- like laughter is a, is a way that we process trauma. Absolutely. It's like a you survival. Wouldn't have, we wouldn't have humor if we didn't have trauma to use a loaded term. Well, I'll take it a step further. I think that humor is a survival mechanism. Okay. So it's not a coincidence. People that are funny often have really interesting lives or they've had to face challenges, right? Because it's a, it's a fucking survival mechanism, right? So humor with this is more effective than a, I got the documents. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, trust me, I got the documents. I've done the research. I've been in, you know, I've been in study for the last 24 hours and, you know, I finally, have, you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, you know, in, in fiction, I don't really read a lot of fiction. Like I'm a gravy addict, bro. I'm reading all nonfiction. Like I'm reading, um, what am I re- I'm reading a book about astrology right now. I'm reading a book about the, the human chakras. These are new subjects to me. I'm intro to astrology. I'm a, uh, I would put it this way, man. Uh, you Gabe, others, Dylan swimming in seas, swimming in the oceans, fly like sailing ships amongst amongst the gravy i'm in the shallow end of gravy you know what i'm saying i've dived into the gravy within the hip-hop industry and i've through that i've formulated my own blend essentially but there's all these different topics that i'm reading about and i don't typically read that much fiction but um i'm st- starting to realize that a lot of fiction writers are like they're like real deal writers and uh with fiction, I can be. Oh, it's ludicrous. harder to write fiction in a lot of ways. Oh my god, it's very hard. It's very, very difficult. Uh, I had to go through. You a have lot to have all. This. You have to like create internal consistency in this world you make. It's totally different. Yeah. Yep, and how they the characters intertwine with other characters and their relationships and how those things evolve. But you know, I never ever thought I'd write a fiction book, dude. You know what I mean? It was it was through uh, you know a lot of different things that it ended up happening. So yeah, that's, I forget what I was talking about. <laughs> Something about gravy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about the, the next thing you're working on. So it sounds like you're oh. pretty hooked on 
authoring. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. It's like I work too, but it's like something that I can obsess over on weekends and something I can voluntarily put myself through turmoil in order to complete a project. And the hope is that people enjoy it. Like you, you know, you talked about that makes me so happy that you laughed out loud through this book. And now for, for some people I want, I want hip hop. I know hip hop fans who've read the book and they've been reaching out to me. And the cool thing is, um, a lot of people love the term hip hop hypnosis. I've seen and read people use the term after I've sort of put it into the lexicon. And it's one of those things. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, you see that 20 year old kid bumping his Acura. <laughs> you know what I mean? That kid's under hip hop hypnosis, you know? Braden says to write good fiction seems you already have to have a grasp on the real world. That ain't easy. <laughs> that's a good point, man. Yeah. That's sort of a, instead of the hero journey, it's sort of the gravy journey. You go through this gravy journey and you have a pretty, pretty good cosmology on the real world. And then from there, you know, right satire. Well, I'm glad you're delving more into the subtle energetics stuff because that's going to further help you create the feeling of consistency that gives the ring of truth within your fiction. You know, especially (laughs) even though most people aren't consciously aware of it, say you had a knowledge of chakras or biofield anatomy or what have you. And then, Mm -hmm. so, you know, you could write a character who has uh, uh, a bum left ankle, keeps rolling his left ankle, but he's also like got crippling anxiety and you would, and people, you wouldn't have to say that that's a biofield anatomy thing, but it would just feel accurate to people because even though they might not consciously be aware of how that all is organized in the body, it is there. And it's something they've been seeing their whole life and even experiencing their whole life. And they just never put the pattern together. So getting the pattern, the way nature works, the way our bodies work will make your fiction that much stronger for sure. I think all the scriptures, you know, there's a phase where in the gravy, in the gravy mining, if you will, <laughs> you you realize like, oh my God, all these scriptures are fiction. And that's true. But then the next level up is to realize the parable, the allegory, this is way more effective to convey truth than any, than any other way of trying to like, just tell it how it is, you know, because really learning doesn't operate on you being told, (laughs) you know, you can't let, you can't have authority hand you truth. It's better to inception somebody, you know, let them go along the path for themselves. They have to be asking the questions. I think that's part of why the secret societies are secretive is so that people will be interested enough to ask the question. And then if you're asking the question, that means you're ready versus being handed something that you're going to just uh, not appreciate or not comprehend anyway. So with fiction, you're able to take somebody on the story. I even think like along the journey with, you know, as if it's them going on the journey. And I honestly think one of the upsides of modernity is that maybe we're able to process some kind of like karmic conditions from many lifetimes just through identifying with a protagonist of a a story whose hero's journey mirrors some kind of thing from our ancestry or thing from a past life or who knows what, but that maybe we can work out a lot of hangups in one lifetime more quickly and effectively than any other point in human history that we have knowledge of. You, You follow? I followed 
the first quarter of that. But- <laughs> so yeah, I'm just saying like, you know, there's a lot of negative things about TV per se or yeah. movies per se, but also think about how a good, a good TV show or a good novel series or, or any of these things. If you take that ride all the way to mm-hmm. the end, it sticks with you. You learn lessons from it almost as if you yourself were the hero in that story. Yeah. And so it, we were able to like, we're able to have tangential lives through this stuff that gives us the possibility of getting lessons that there are not otherwise available all in one lifetime for one person. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the human uh, biofield anatomy stuff you do with Elaine DeMacusick. I've read both of her books, mind blowing stuff, but astrotheology, I think you touched on a little bit, dude, astrotheology has helped me make sense of the world. In a, in a major way. And I would agree with you that studying some of those topics does lead to better fiction with, without, without a doubt, because they're truthful. Those are truthful topics, right? The human biofield, as well as astrotheology. If you can incorporate that and then the reader reads it, they might not know, but they're, they're experiencing the ring of truth through fiction, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Fiction that has truth in it is great yeah. rather than, uh, uh, <laughs> like token dude like that woman you had on the other night i caught a little bit of that token's a legend right yeah. or c.s lewis legend because they say truthful things uh within their fictional works right and i think a lot of people they might have reached a point in the gravy where they're like oh my god there's some dark gravy out here what can i do personally to sort of elevate human consciousness i could potentially create these characters, create this setting. And from there I can sort of uh, elevate people and create a product that they enjoy that makes them laugh out loud, you know? Yeah, man. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm going to bring up the Kanye quest thing and then okay. maybe we can just talk about Kanye a little bit. Cause okay, sure. I'm sure you know a lot more about it than me, but yep. he, he's been very interesting lately. Now there's this <laughs> thing called Kanye quest 3030. Okay. And I'm just going to go to the Wikipedia for this and uh, I'll share it. Gabe put, Gabe was talking to me about this just a couple of days ago. He had no idea we we're going to do a hip hop stream tonight. So sorry, you're missing out on this buddy, but you're probably, there's probably a really good reason for it. He's got the uh, whiteboard. He's working on a new whiteboard. <laughs> so Kanye quest 3030 is a role-playing game from 2013 unlicensed and unauthorized by Kanye West, created by RPG maker Clara Hope under the username Phoenix. It's a hip-hop-themed science fiction 2D role-playing game. So here's the plot. In the year 2010, oh God, sorry, I showed Nicki Minaj, Kanye West takes out his garbage before tripping and falling into a portal, which brings him to the year 3030. The United States has become a dystopian society ruled by a clone of rapper Lil B., Claiming himself to be a god. So wait, is this a fictional tale? What is this exactly? It's a video game. Oh, okay. And it's like, so, is, is Kanye like cool with this? Or is it like... It's unlicensed and unauthorized. Oh, so like why, Like, what's what's Gabe's angle on this? He just loves it? He just thinks it's funny? Like, what is he... Uh, he just shared this with me and he's like, look at this. And I think we were going to weave on it, but oh, we'll, have okay. to, we'll have to catch up with him later to find out what his take on it is. I'm go- yeah. We're going to give our take on it. A, well, so Lil B Kanye. in the dystopian future society claims to be a god. He's the ruler. A prophecy exists claiming that Kanye West would return one day and overthrow Lil B. 
With this, with this knowledge, Kanye West travels to this dystopian society of the future and teams up with other musicians such as MF Doom, Tupac, and RZA to fight to free America. Along the way, they are challenged by other musicians such as Eminem, Nicki Minaj, De La Soul, and LL Cool J. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, upon completing the game, Kanye gets sent back to 2010, where it is revealed that he dreamed the whole story after tripping on the pavement and passing out. So apparently it's kind of like a Pokemon style game where you're collecting rappers and there's a lot of in jokes. Right. But here's where it's weird. In 2015, an article revealed that if the player typed in the word ascend into a dialogue box with an NPC, the player would be taken to a secret section of the game. In this secret section, the game would claim that the rest of the game's contents was a front for this area and that the area was designed to help teach you something beneficial. The section is full of terminals and the player must enter a specific code into each one in order to complete the area. If the player goes backwards, they will enter a room with a QR code, which has to be screen captured at multiple points in order to form the whole code. The website linked to the QR code had nothing but the name Phoenix Gregory placed on the screen in a Comic Sans font. After inputting all the needed codes, the player would be teleported to a final terminal that would congratulate them on their ascension and then prompt for another code. Upon entering the correct code and agreeing to participate further, agreeing is the keyword, the player would then be asked for their private information. This was theorized by some to be connected to a group called Ascensionism that entered urban legend around the same time as the game being released. Ascensionism has been described as a cult that believes in reincarnation and that was apparently hoping to recruit, recruit more members with Kanye West. They were rumored to have connections with record labels such as Ascensionism Records, which was later revealed to be co-owned by the game's creator, Clara Hope. Another game would be connected to a group called Calypso in which the player completes tasks around a house while voice. Mm, Okay. We'll just leave it to that. Anyway. So there's like some weird secret alternate reality game in this game, Kanye quest. And I don't know if you've ever stumbled across this type of thing before, but there is a, (laughs) there is this rabbit trail, these rabbit trails that get put onto the internet uh, in the form of alternate reality games that seem to be some kind of recruitment tool for, I don't know who secret societies, intelligence agencies, something. You know what I think it is creative writing. I think somebody (laughs) wrote something creative and I don't have much, much opinion on Kanye 2030. Other than that, I could talk about Kanye because in my view, Kanye is actually sort of a success story out of hip hop hypnosis. I mean, his, his recent albums are incredible. Um, they're gospel albums. Eminem had a line where he said something, something I'd rather put out a gospel record, sort of mocking the idea of doing that. Kanye does it. And the Jesus is King album is incredible. And uh, his Sunday service album, I've heard great things. So there's sort of this, he sort of broke the spell that you need to create materialistic uh, garbage. He sort of, uh, sort of graduated for that from that. And as far as Kanye, I wish him the best, you know, I hope he's doing great. Um, I don't think he's crazy. I think that um, a good gauge on people is their opinion of Kanye West, because if you say, Oh, he's crazy, he's crazy. It's like, that's sort of, sort of a normie take, right? I think he's an artist and uh, I think he's an innovator and I think he's a very entertaining guy. 
Well, do you think when you say breaking out of the hip hop hypnosis spell? Yeah. I mean, do you think he was handled? Do you think that because I think there's a lot of evidence that he was being yeah. handled by certain certain types of people. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a gauge. Curious Gazelle. Kanye West is crazy. <laughs> Curious Gazelle. He's actually great on Twitter. He's actually a pretty cool guy. He's always very inquisitive. Um, but I, I like Kanye well, a lot. At the end of the day, all of these people are human beings. Absolutely. You know, and that's 100%. part of the whole celebrity culture that they become fetishized, that they're somehow seen as not humans. They're like we can say yeah. th- horrible things about these about celebrities that you would never say to somebody's face. You know, that's so the Kanye, big problem with online culture. He has this great line. He says, uh, tell the devil I'm going on strike. I've been working for you my whole life. And so that's sort of his acknowledgement that a lot of his glorification of materialism has served uh, darker forces. And he's acknowledging that and he's moving forward. So if I were were to um, talk about one line that encapsulates somebody graduating from hip hop hypnosis, it's that one line. Yeah. And I guess it's worth it to uh, give people like, what would it take for somebody to be redeemed? That was part of this cult culture, you know, and it seems like, I mean, I don't know a ton about it, but it seems like he's, doing his best. Maybe it's not the way you or I or someone else would do it, but yeah. Um, Dylan says a lot of celebs make it when they're young. So their worldview is going to be drastically different based on fame and fortune, you know, so you got to give people some slack, I would say. Yeah, um, absolutely. Do you think he's, a, do you think that he's been cloned? <laughs> I don't, I don't buy into the clone stuff. I think that, you know, he's might've changed his perspective, but um I think people can be replaced, but I, I'm not sure about the cloning stuff quite yet. Well, I was hoping, uh, I was kind of hoping that Gabe would would be here for for this reveal because we've gone this whole stream and we haven't said the p word. So hold it down for me for a second. I'm looking something up What's that the P-word? I came across today. Oh, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. People in the chat know. <laughs> hold it down for me. Say something interesting. The okay, P word. Found it. Yeah, what do you think the P word is? I have no idea. I haven't uh, been fully up to date quite yet. Okay, so there's <laughs> synth. I found I found this uh, article from this week. Synthetic human embryos created in groundbreaking advance. So basically. Scientists have created synthetic human embryos using stem cells in a groundbreaking advance that sidesteps the need for eggs or sperm. Synthetic human embryos. So basically, (laughs) uh, I found this. The motivation for the work is for scientists to understand the black box period of development that is so-called because scientists are only allowed to cultivate embryos in the lab up to a legal limit of 14 days. They then pick up the course of development much further further along by looking at pregnancy scans and embryos donated for research. So basically, they're like the gist of this article is that they are creating, um, like with this synthetic, in this synthetic sense, they're creating placentas with without an actual baby attached to them. <laughs> I was really wanting Gabriel to be here because he would just be like, ah, <laughs> placenta is the P word, by the way. Okay. Yeah. I don't get that stuff in terms of like, uh, you know, the caw and all this sort of, sort of birth gravy. I, I There's a lot there, 
but um, I'll get there when I, when I need to get there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so man. So <clears throat> anyway, I just find that this is uh it's interesting that it's coming out into the open that the science trademark is so has it always been and is clearly super interested in the placenta thing. Uh, why they're, why they're announcing that they're able to synthetically create those is uh, there's <laughs> humunculus shit is basically what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about Kanye being a clone, but Dylan says anchor bear posted a photo a week or so ago of Kanye and it did not look like the original Kanye. Yeah. Good job, everybody in the chat. Rachel, <laughs> my Cherie, <laughs> what the P word was. <laughs> That's 100%. hilarious. Yeah. Anchor bear has been doing good work on Kanye. I'm kind of over it. I think that, um, you know, he went on a really hilarious media run and, um, I think it's really cool that him and Owen had a friendship for a while. I think that's the coolest thing, but I do find it a little bit strange that I don't think they've been in contact. Hopefully Ye's doing great. Um, he could have been replaced. Who knows? We will pray for, for Mr. Ye. I, uh, it's kind of weird. He's walking around with shoulder pads, but he's somebody who is, uh, hilarious at a high level and he's trolling at a high level. And he's, uh, he's achieved a lot in his life. His, here's the thing, man, I'll be in the gym, Kanye song, go get, you know, a smoothie Kanye song. So he's pervasive, dude. He's got a catalog. He's got a catalog and a half that man for sure. Mm. Yeah, man. Um, so what else are you into lately? You know, as Um, we, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of wind it down here. Um, what am I into lately? Um, astro theology sort of intro level still. Um, astrology intro level, loving it, reading about, you know, the chakra system, enjoying it so much. Um, reading a book called the working on the surface acid book. I'm busting ass for that to be available this fall and, um, correcting some things in this book actually, which I really appreciate you pointing out. And, uh, two books out this year, I got a third book. It's called, uh, it's kind of zombie oriented, sort of satirical. That one's coming out. And then eventually I'm writing like an athletic health book because I'm obsessed with the health stuff. It's one of the, the few things we can control in, you know, in our lives is our own health. And uh, that's also what I'm into. So I got at least one book coming out every year, something I can put my balls into uh, while I'm not, you know, working because <laughs> sort of having a creative outlet, I think is so important. And I think it's, it's wonderful that people enjoy a product that you create. And it's like, it's not about making it big. It's about making uh, an impact on one reader. You know, if you if you sell one book or you don't want to sell one, you want to sell a bunch, but you want people to enjoy it. You want people to love it. And that's, that's just a good energy exchange. And that gives, gets you motivated to work on the next one and improve upon the next one. So it's, there's something sort of alchemical here. This is, uh, this is the soil. Okay. The next book is going to be sort of water oriented. More like the manure in the soil. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. The soil, the manure. Yeah, exactly. The chart. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you want to call it. Uh, the <laughs> charter is the solution is what I've been saying, because I do believe chance that we are sort of at the end of a cycle here, especially after the 2020 to 2022 period, right? The 2023, 2024, we're going up, but we got to start from the ground up. And um, I totally agree. Yeah. I'm my personal yeah. life for sure. Yep. Top, top of the charts, people. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get there. Let's get to the top of the charts, baby. So, but honestly, get the ebook, get the paperback, enjoy it. I'm working so hard on my second book. Any feedback negative is welcome because then I'll put it this way, man. 
if uh if you got something on your face like you know like a, a piece of broccoli or some shit and people don't say anything are they really I'm suspect friend? of them i'm suspect yeah. of those people who don't say anything i'm greatly appreciative of the friend who points something out and says hey man that's broccoli on your face. Something like that. You see what I'm saying here? So any yeah. negative criticism is welcome as well. You know, I appreciate that almost more than positive criticism. Well, packaging is important too. It's like, you know, you don't want to, the, the, there, there's a certain type that is just waiting for the grammatical error so that they mm-hmm. can like attack, mm-hmm. but constructive criticism, we got to have it. Yeah, absolutely. If, if we're too sensitive for it, then what are we, what are we doing now? I, I wanted it. to ask though, as an eternal athlete, as you yes. self-style, what uh, what can you tell us guys out there about keeping our our vessel at a high performing level? You know, I mean, that's a whole other subject matter. I would like to, yeah. I, I'm personally into that, so I would like to know yeah. what your thoughts are. Um, what I like to do, so I get a lot of exercise at work because I'm in construction, so I don't go to the gym uh, five days. I, I go to the gym once a week nowadays. So I think it's important if you're a young man to get into some sort of physical endeavor, um, whether it's uh, preferably some sort of physical occupation, but find something that you love to do. I don't care if it's skating. I don't care if it's surfing. I don't care if it's football, basketball, find something that you love to do physical. What do I do nowadays? Um, at least once a week, I love to do a sprinting barefoot workout, go to any soccer field, any outfield during off hours. There's nobody around morning, you know, maybe during the day, depends where you're at. I don't care if you live in New York. I don't care if you live in Los Angeles, you, you live somewhere where there is a field. Everybody does. There's a soccer field. There's a baseball field. What I do is I do 10, 100 yard sprints. I go about 80, 90% and I do them barefoot. And you, you basically get high after because you feel so good. And it's very primal. And besides lifting heavy weights, I mean, sprinting, ask yourself a question. When is the last time that you sprinted? For some people, it's some people, it's fucking decades since the last time they sprinted. And if you're going to sprint, Barefoot on grass is one of the best places to do it. You're going to build calves. You're going to build calves like a University of Miami defensive back, okay? Sprinting barefoot. And uh, that's something I love to do. I love to shoot hoops. I love to lift weights. One of the reasons why I love to lift weights heavily because when I get in there, it's only once a week nowadays, but it feels so much, you feel so much better mentally. <laughs> Any problems that you were having anxiety about is... Uh, Damn, ten hundred is no, it's not. But you can work your way up there. You know, start with two, start with four, whatever you want to work with. Um, but yeah, I love weights because you just feel whatever problems you got are almost gone once you get in there and you get out. The modern day gym is like a nightclub that can be kind of fun. Let's be honest; it's not all bad. It's it can be pretty great, dude. Totally. There's. The feeling after a good lift session is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ask Jenny how good a mood I'm in when I come home from the gym in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, sprinting barefoot. I I see a lot of appeal in that. I actually have uh, one of the most common recurring dreams for me that I have is running full speed barefoot through grass. Like I have that dream wow. all the time. Then you should... Then you should but do I should it. Probably do it. Yeah, I don't definitely. Do that. I don't do much because a lot of people in the uh, the holistic health space they'll ground, 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 ground. It's like I walk barefoot every day, yeah, all the time. Right, but it's like, dude, when you sprint barefoot, that's going to amplify everything times a hundred, and you're going to get high, and you're going to feel very primal. And like, dude, sprinting is man, 
that that's that's high octane stuff and you're gonna you're gonna look good you're gonna feel good so i didn't start doing that till like five years ago but i haven't been able to stop and it's something that i look forward to whenever the spring rolls around it's time Mm. to it's time to get running because i distance can be kind of fun but distance isn't that fun you know what i mean yeah that's more like long-term sustained effort that has its own psychological thing to it that has got positive elements but I think the takeaway from what you're saying, even if it isn't sprinting, particularly for men, I, I, I feel this is super important, but you got to like look at yourself and ask a question. How often do I exert 100% effort at anything? You know, and that can apply to more mental tasks. Like, you know, it takes a lot of effort to write a book, I'm sure. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Waking I'm up in, at three or four in the morning, uh, working all weekend, but it's a labor of love. And the thing for me with writing books, it's like, okay, I do construction. I'll be there on time. I'll give it a hundred percent. I'll be there, man. Am I going to wake <laughs> up at three or four in the morning to do it? No, I'm not. Am I going to wake up at three or four in the morning to work on a book? Yeah. So I should keep doing that. Right. And uh, am I going to voluntarily spend weekend after weekend after weekend working on a book? Absolutely. It's torture, but I love it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we finally got an end product and uh, I, I hope people enjoy it. So, you know, everybody wants to write a book, man, but you got to go through a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain in this game. That's for sure. Yeah, you gotta. I'm sure that process requires you to really face yourself, (laughs) especially in the the revision. All right, man. Well, unless you got any good closing thoughts for the people, I think we'll wrap this baby up. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks for sending me this book and the laughs that I got out of it. It's been cool to be friends with you over the last however many months. You know that we've known each other, and hopefully, this ain't the last one we do. Uh, Keep showing up in the streams and. You, you've been on the vibrant. So if you're ever watching a vibrant and you're like, I want to get in there, I got something to say, or you want to leave us a voicemail, let me know. I'll send you a link. Yeah. I have one final question for you, Chance. Speaking of the vibrant, I want you to tell me quickly about the shows that you have and sort of the different themes. So there's vibrant, there's sort of the interverse, and then there's the, uh, there's a few others that you got. I just want you to tell the, tell the new viewers, because I kind of always wanted to ask you this, like, the themes of each of these shows, right? So Interverse is where I started, right? I wanted to create a, I wanted to have a a place where the flow state of conscious conversation, I could engage on that regularly because I was having so many really good, deep, deep chats with, with friends or with people that inspired me in real life as I, started to uh, find a new community in a more artistic and creative realm. And, you know, everything you talked about with hip hop hypnosis, I could, I could do a parody like that on um, the jam band and electronic music scene mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and music festivals. The, the, the hedonism there is like cranked up to the max. And the way that people follow around their favorite jam band, like fish or something is possibly even more worse and more disassociative than uh, a lot of the, the fans of hip hop that maybe go to the occasional super expensive rap concert. So that aside though, there's a lot of good in those worlds. And I wanted to have a space where I could engage that flow state. So interverse was that and uh, been doing that one the longest, of course. And it's also where I can learn things and share what I'm learning as I'm learning it. That's, I think that's the new model is the teach as you learn model 
that seems to be where the world is going. I think that's a very honest way to operate. And it's also better than the way that teaching used to work, where somebody would become hyper expertise in one subject. But then as they were stuck to that subject for years and decades and so on, that their attachment to it possesses them of a dishonesty to look at anything that might contradict what it was they've established themselves upon. So I, I know I have a couple of things that are like my thing, like uh, some symbolism and, and philology and <laughs> energy work and tuning and all that, but I also try to keep moving forward with new interests as, you know, keep pushing the envelope forward, teach as I learn. Now, Vibrant, originally I started that because I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to do a show that was always live. Obviously, by the title, it's supposed to be more fun, <laughs> more free, less, um, I don't know, academic or scholarly was the original plan. This is a good conversation that's an example of that where it's funny and fun. Mm-hmm. And the first few episodes were like way more loose and casual and funny. But as it's gone on, it's kind of just become an outlet where it's uh, it's sort of evolved to where rather being just about kind of goofing off, having fun and hanging out every every Wednesday with all of us, although that's still there. And I wanted it to be a community show where people can call in and we still get that. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna, you're banned. You're annoying. Hold on a second. This person's annoying me. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Banned for life. See ya. Hold on. Okay. All right. And no more. Okay. So yeah. So community oriented, we get to have, uh, the opportunity for Collins, right? But the the thing that it's really evolved into, and this episode is not really like that, <laughs> but we have, you know, a larger panel show comes into play. And I have a, a roster of regulars that I can bring on and say, I'm going to talk to somebody about a subject that's musical oriented, like this t- topic. I can hit up Yorgo, <laughs> George, <laughs> George Mesa. Uh, he was busy tonight, so we didn't get him on. But, you know, for example... I have people that are really good on certain subjects. I bring them in for that subject as an extra panelist. And it's so much fun to have like the cast of characters that Vibrant has got. And I look forward to continuing to expand that. And then I have the Marvelous Demystifiers. That's the thing. Uh, we obviously were decoding Marvel shows. That one's taken a bit of a lull, but I think me and Gabe are going to bring that back pretty quick. And in a hurry, I've got a lot of stuff that I want to uh, demystify in that realm. I mean, we could potentially do almost everything Marvel ever made and get a lot out of it. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, That's maybe the most fun show sometimes. (laughs) And then uh, apart from that, those are the three shows that I do. And the the least regular one being Marvelous Demystifiers. I will say, I think there's a pretty high likelihood that... uh, once I'm done with the last Spirit World audiobook, that we'll see a more regular, maybe even like a Spirit World podcast with me and Dylan and Let's you go. Know, keeping up with his research. I yep. really want that to happen. I think that's going to happen. I'm not yep. like, it's not, I'm not announcing an announcement or anything, but it seems very likely. So if, if there was going to be another show added to the roster, that's what it would be. But I want to finish uh, the next audiobook first, making good awesome. progress. Yeah, yeah I've read since the he's first doing more of a four. Substack thing, which you should think about. Substack's what? a good way to. Uh, oh, I have Substack. Know. I have the Owl Dog Hour on Substack. I have articles. I have a podcast, audio podcast that I do. But yeah, uh-huh. I'm four four books deep on Spirit World, so I'm up to date, up to book four. You know, for the most part. 
But I, I love the first one's my personal favorite. Are you uh, <laughs> are you doing audiobooks or reading them? Uh, I read them. I don't do audiobooks. I don't do any audiobooks. Yeah, I think overall, I mean, not to talk you guys out of buying my audiobook versions, but uh, I think reading it is the best way to go. But it's good to have both. It's good as a review tool. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, does that, uh, does that answer your question? <laughs> Kabir says Vibrant rules. I think the Vibrant might be the most fun. Yeah. What are we going to do about Lizzo? Dude, she's the final boss. If you stay under hip-hop hypnosis, you're going to get smothered by Lizzo. That's the final message I have. So read the charter or you're going to get smothered. Okay. Lizzo's coming for you with a body slam. All right. (laughs) All right, man. Yeah, man. And this subject is far from over. There's all kinds of things we could analyze in more granular detail, like music videos and the occult, dark occult symbolism. But yeah, yeah, that, that may be for another day. So thanks for coming and hanging out, man. It's been fun. And uh, everybody watch out for Lizzo. You should probably buy the charter so that that fate does not befall you. Yes. (laughs) All right. Good night, man. Good night, everybody. All right, guys. See ya.